Yeah, I should not be flaunting my wares like that, I guess. Hey, welcome to Simply Faithful. My name is Eric Tunges. I'm the pastor of Kishwaukee Community EPC near Rockford, Illinois. Yeah, welcome everybody. My name is Gray Ewing, pastor of New Valley Church in central Phoenix, Arizona. And this is Simply Faithful, a place where we have Christian conversations without the hype, where we try to dig into issues of life and faith and sometimes ministry with each other and with other interesting people. Thanks for joining us today. If you like what you hear or benefit from it in any way, we'd love for you to help us out by sharing it with someone, uh, just texting them a screenshot of it or sending the iTunes link or the podcast link. Uh, we'd really appreciate you sharing it and get the word out for us. This week, hospitality. Today on Simply Faithful, we're going to have a conversation that in some ways feels very strange to me, Gray, because we're still in the season of COVID where a lot of people might be left scratching their heads a little bit about why we're talking about this because there are limits on it in this time and place that there aren't most of the time. But I think it's a really important conversation in general. And even in this season, I think we can do some of it, but especially as I think about um, for our church coming out of this season in the, hopefully in the next few months as we're able to go more and more back to normal. It's something that I really want us to be talking about and that I've been thinking about, but enough bearing the lead. That topic is hospitality. It is inviting people into your home, sharing space with people, uh, just having that kind of relational time often around a table or something like that. And so I just want us to talk first about the idea of hospitality in scripture, because it is actually a biblical idea and command. And then I want us to talk kind of very practically, because it's something that I know we both value, but I want to talk very practically about how we do that and what some of the wrong ideas are that keep us from doing that. Yeah, I've remarked several times uh, to folks that I've forgotten how to be a pastor during the pandemic because I couldn't have people into my home. It's just a weird, it's a weird time, and so much of ministry is really about that table. Not having it has, has demonstrated a lack, a, a deep void that we can, by somewhat talking about it today, maybe begin to fill the void. Yeah, both at home and I notice it, getting lunches with people, getting coffee with people, that's a big part of how ministry looks for me too. But it's not just a pastor thing. Let's start, Gray, with just talk through for me what kind of scripture says about hospitality and the idea of hospitality. Yeah, well, going back to the very beginning, the Garden of Eden, we have God providing you know, a place for meals. You know, he, he puts Adam and Eve into the midst of a bountiful harvest that he then specifically tells them is for them. And then that theme of God's giving of his table is throughout the whole of scripture. And so, um, you know, we have like the Psalm that says, you know, I, you prepare a table for me in the midst of my enemies. So even in the midst of all the hard things of life, God is providing for us. And so maybe I would start there just theologically saying God provides for us. He gives us out of the abundance of who he is. And out of that, we're taught his nature such that when we share that with other people, we are providing the same thing that he provides uh, to us. Yeah. Hospitality is always sort of provision plus relationship. And so you can see that in God's actions. And there is also a theme throughout the Old Testament. It gets more explicit in the New, but throughout the Old Testament where you see these sort of hospitality events exemplified in the life of God's people, you think about 
the way, for example, Abraham entertains what ends up to be God, but initially appears to be these three strangers, right? And provides very well for their need. There's ways you can see hospitality um, contrasted with that in the failures of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, just over and over, you see sort of like people welcoming in strangers and giving them food or people um, sharing fellowship with one another in a way that builds relationship. I mean, yeah, you see that in a lot of the stories of the Old Testament once you actually start looking for it. And explicit commands, too. Commands to take care of the stranger and the alien and laws regarding what you should do to care for those who need the most care. Yeah, the whole sacrificial feast system in ancient Israel is also actually something that's programmed for hospitality. People don't think about this, I think, when we think about sacrifices, but except for the burnt offering, right, the whole burnt offering, all the other sacrifices, while you would burn part of it on the altar, the rest would be cooked and shared actually as these feasts that others around you in the community and the priests would sit down at the table with you and and feast together. Yeah, the priests got paid partially in red meat, and that is a practice (laughs) I wish we still had. And then obviously in the New Testament, there are explicit commands. Uh, For example, Hebrews 13, 12 says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. First Peter 4, 9 says, show hospitality to one another. So both showing hospitality to people outside the church and people inside the church. Yeah, Romans 12, contribute to the needs of the saints and, and seek to show hospitality. He's talking there about sharing and the, the whole idea of Acts chapter 2 of they had everything in common. There is a shared life that we have that includes food and provision. Right. And then, I mean, also just one of the qualifications for being an elder is being hospitable, right? Both in First Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, um, the leaders of Jesus's church, especially one of the virtues they're supposed to be marked with is their hospitality. So first, maybe I, we've kind of said what it means, but let's let's just spell out what are we talking about? If the Bible in all those places commands us to be hospitable, what does that look like? Well, I think, Eric, one of the most basic things that we could say about it is that hospitality, it has that idea of a home, you know, in it, it has the idea of welcoming someone into a, into a home. And so even though hospitality then has a broader meaning now, bringing the home to other places, we might say, or something like that, that, that hospice, that hospital, um, you know, kind of root in there is a, is a place of care and, and shelter. Yeah. I often think of it as hospitality is the combination of sharing your space and sharing your stuff and sharing yourself, that it's those things fused together. The last part is important, but one of the really interesting things about it as an event and about human relationships in general is that sharing yourself is often strengthened by or interwoven with sharing, say, your space, right? Having someone into your home or just being together at a restaurant or something and sharing your stuff, giving gifts, providing meals, things like that is actually a part of sharing yourself in a real sense. That's right. They all come together to give that sense of hospitality. And, and you know, Eric, what we've said at our church is we're never having a church function without something to eat or drink. And, you know, there's like a, there's an element to which they, they strengthen each other, right? So if you have one, then it helps you have the other. So you start by sharing food maybe, and then suddenly the conversation follows, or maybe you, you have this great conversation with someone and then you can say, Hey, can we just, let's go out to coffee and talk about that. You know, there's, there's kind of a, a trichotomy of, of those three things. I really like that definition and I, I can see how they feed off each other. All right. So that's the thing. But then the, the related question to that is why is this a thing that the Bible commands us to do? Why does hospitality actually matter? Why is it something that we as Christians are supposed to practice? The best place for any of us to start with why we do something is to look at Jesus Christ as the model, the par excellence, the one who went before us, who showed us the way 
And in Jesus, what we see is his hospitality, his care for his people. He has both an internal tenderness for them. So you see him looking at Jerusalem and weeping over her and, and longing to, to comfort her. But he also followed that up with practical things. He cooked his disciples fish on the beach. And when they were struggling to believe his resurrected body, and he uh, shows them how to wash feet. And he also models it in many other ways. You know, if you look at the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is having meals with so many people. Tim Chester has commented before, that's a pastor and a writer over in England. He says that Jesus ate his way through the Gospel of Luke. So there's one way to structure that Gospel is that you move from scene to scene with Jesus at different tables with all different kinds of people, religious elite, all the way down to women of the night. It's the way that he did ministry. He modeled that for us. Yeah, no, that's really true. And also there's a real sense in which I feel like the gospel itself, in terms of inviting us into God's family and the household of God by his grace and establishing relationship with us and the Lord's table, right? The Lord's supper, which is a sort of visible gospel that we participate in are both really images of God's hospitality. I mean, I often invite people to imagine, even though you don't do this exactly and how most churches celebrate the Lord's Supper, you know, you're coming and sitting down at this table and at the head of the table is Jesus and all around you are all of the saints throughout the world and throughout history and you're all dining together at the Lord's table, right? Breaking bread together. Sometimes I get a romantic notion that we should change up how we do it so that we, that picture is better portrayed, but then all the practical realities come in. We do have a series of boards that can be placed on a metal frame and we can make about a 50 foot table out in our green space at our church if we want to we haven't yet done it yet but one one day we're going to have everybody that can or at least in a couple of shifts sit around that table or something for Monday Thursday for the last few years we've actually done sort of Scottish style table communion where we take all of the pews out of the sanctuary and have tables set up and um, and I'll take the Lord's table sitting at at the table it's a sweet time I'll also add, though, so we're talking about Jesus models it, and that's obviously, in some sense, the ultimate answer. There are practical reasons, too, that I think that hospitality is really important and maybe especially important for us in this age as the church. And one of the reasons is because being hospitable, and especially being hospitable and opening our homes in a way that um, that invites people outside the church, right, shares with strangers and outsiders and things like that, our homes— and often also sharing it with people inside the church at the same time, is that it actually provides the best space for unbelievers and believers to come in contact with each other and interact with each other and for the gospel to spread. One of the things I often think about is that in the like 100s and 200s in the church, church services were actually closed to outsiders because of persecution and because the Roman government would send people in to like take notes on who the leaders of the church were. There were actually deacons that were like bouncers at the door who would make sure that you were authorized to, to come into the church service. And so there was no way for seekers or the lost or whatever, usually, unless they had someone really vouching for them and, you know, were well known. But there's no way for just a random outsider to come into the church. But yet the church grew really rapidly. And the question is, how did that happen? And it wasn't really because people were like handing out tracts at the marketplace or something. It was mostly because believers were just extremely generous in terms of sharing their lives, sharing their stuff, sharing their space and sharing themselves with the people around them. And so they would develop relationships with people inside and outside the church. People outside the church through those relationships would see the power of the gospel in people's lives. And then that would invite them in. Yeah, I totally agree. It's also just this great leveler 
So if people are at a table, Eric, there's a diminished social contract, meaning there's diminished levels of success because we're all there at the same table. And it's a very subtle way of doing that. So people can come in. I've seen people's relationships heal just by being at the same event together because there's kind of a recognition. Hey, we're all sitting down. We have to be family. Just like at a Thanksgiving dinner, you know, everybody might be fighting beforehand, but everybody wants to make a good effort to be the family when they sit down. So it levels things for people. And I agree, it is it is probably the primary way that we have practiced evangelism in our church. Many, many people have come to our church, and a lot of those who maybe were already Christians as well, but who moved to Phoenix for the first time, and because we had some kind of event or some kind of home thing or, or shared space or uh, night where we're in each other's homes, many have stayed with us and never even visited another church because it's just like, well, this is... This is what I'm looking for, a close connection and actually to be be with and near people. And so it definitely has some kind of, beyond the pieces of it, like you might think, how does this add up to the whole? Sitting down, eating a meal, like that doesn't seem like it would make someone close if you just look at it kind of from the outside. But it has a amazing compounding effect when you make it your practice to have hospitality as a main source of life in your home and also in your church. There's something, some kind of major sticky glue that gets created. Absolutely. And then maybe alongside that too, I also think hospitality is really important for discipleship, for helping believers learn to grow in Jesus, and especially for helping maybe less mature believers grow. Um, I think it's really our loss of hospitality that makes churches either not do discipleship or try to have to adopt really programmatic approaches to discipleship. Because the best way to learn to be a Christian is just through having someone who's further along with Jesus, like hang out with you regularly and pray with you and share their, you know, share their life with you and let you see and learn alongside them. And it's not wrong to intentionally structure some of those things in either. But I really do think that if we could just be more intentional about, especially both sharing our time and space and stuff with people, but doing it in a way that, you know, is explicitly spiritual with brothers and sisters, right? That does talk about the spiritual parts of our life. And that's intentionally sort of with a broad group of people, right? Being really kind of promiscuous with our hospitality so that it's not just a few people that are in exactly the same spot as us. I really think a lot of the discipleship work of the church would just happen through that. So let me ask you this then, Gray. So some people are hearing this and they're like, yeah, I agree. But I know a lot of people struggle when we're talking about these ideas of hospitality. So then what I want to do before talking about some practical kind of advice on doing it well is what are the objections that people ask or what are the reasons that people hear that and pull back like I can't do that or that's not for me or something like that. I hear a lot of grumbling about this, Eric, in terms of the kind of common excuses being I don't have a good space for this or whenever whenever I move out of an apartment, we we move into a house, then that, that's when I can practice hospitality. There's kind of pragmatic things. People envision other people who are quote unquote gifted at hospitality and then imagine themselves being the same. And what it seems to them is the trappings of it are the, are the key of it. I think that's a, that's a hang up that people have is I don't have the right space. I don't have the right temperament would be another one. I'm introverted. I don't really engage that well with people. It'll just be awkward for everyone. And so they never really take the plunge of actually doing it. Yeah. Let me maybe speak challenge back to both of those that you named. You can kind of chime in too, because I hear both of those a lot too. And in response to the first one, well, my kind of scripted response is, is that, you know, in the first century when this was commanded, houses were one room, right? <laughs> um, which is to say, 
you cannot let our culture's ideas about having needing like a mansion or a McMansion at least to to have people over dictate it to you. And I'll just be honest, like as someone who's been, I mean, we we used to put thirty people in our tiny apartment right after we got married for a Bible study. I remember, and you know, I mean, as someone who's who's tried to do this over the years, I actually think that having less space is more conducive to having really good hospitality that cements relationship. Having been in several of your apartments, I can attest to that. And also, <laughs> if we had any pictures from those era, it would not fly well in the corona times, how close we were to each other. Yeah, that that part of it definitely needs to um, be something that you're more mindful of later. And then look, the introversion thing I want to be a little more careful with because different people do have different temperaments. And it is not the case that everyone's practices need to look exactly the same way. But the truth is that a significant part of what temperament indicates, not all, there's some good God-given parts, but a significant part of what temperament indicates, I think, is the ways that you're tempted to give in to temptation and disobey God. And so whatever you name your temperament, what you need to say is the things, the parts of obedience that I'm not inclined to, that just means I have to work hard. And yeah, you're not going to like every night have 20 people over or something like that. But just like an extrovert has to work very hard for rest and for solitude and for prayer and stillness, an introvert is still called to things like hospitality and um, encouraging brothers and sisters and, you know, building up relationally the body. And so while it's okay for you to not have to have it look exactly the same with someone else. Yeah. And just balancing it out a little bit, of course, it is okay to figure out what your unique contribution would be. Maybe, Maybe you don't have an apartment full of 30 people, but you consistently commit to having a couple of people over on Sunday afternoons or whatever it may be. It doesn't have to fall into those. And, you know, on on the other one, it's not wrong as well if you're in the market for a house to think, how could I find a house that would be useful in the kingdom of God? That's, you know, our current house, about half of our house is one big room. It's it's very practical for ministry. And it's very impractical for everything else. <laughs> so, but but we like it because it enables us to do that, and that is a high value for us. So, it's not wrong to think strategically and to think individually about how God might have called you to do it. The question I think Eric is raising is: Am I trying to escape, you know, something of God's command, or am I trying to embrace it in, in whatever ways I can? Yeah, it's fine to ask how you can do it in your place, but that's different than asking whether you have to do it, right? Because it is something we're called to do. Yeah. I think the biggest hang up though is this deeper kind of mentality, which is that people view their home and their family as sort of, it's this bunkered reality, right? It used to be that, that homes were just kind of open and people would come and go, right? You'd sit on your front porch and the neighbors would come over. People would just drop by unannounced. It was really this kind of integrated with the community thing. And for a lot of reasons over the last 50 years, that shifted to this sort of siloed view of the home where it's more and more like within these walls is my space and out there is where other people belong. And so we view our home and our family within that home as kind of ours. And I think that's just really fundamentally problematic. I was thinking about a couple of years ago, um, I read... Uh, Rosaria Butterfield wrote this great book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key and their practice of hospitality. I would highly suggest if this is something you're thinking about, go read that book. You will not practice hospitality in the extreme way that her family does. I mean, I don't (laughs) and we'd be regarded as pretty hospitable, but it's a good challenging book. But anyway, she makes the comment that those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all but is God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. 
They open doors, they seek out the underprivileged, they know that the gospel comes with the house key. And in my mind, that's just such a like, that's so the right Jesus way to think about our homes, right? Is to say that like, this is a missionary outpost of the kingdom of heaven. This is a hospital that I'm supposed to go find the sick and wounded and bring in. Yeah, let me bring up a couple of points on that. And first, the first one is just to note her awesome phrase, radical ordinary. You know, that's that in a sense is worth the cost of the book because uh, it's such a great capturing phrase. I think a lot of times when we think about what Jesus calls us to, we think in the radical terms. You know, he says, you know, maybe it might turn against he might turn you against father and, and, and daughter or father and sons and mothers and daughters. And, you know, there can be an extremeness. And so we think, well, if I'm going to be hospitable, that means I have to have somebody in my home like every single night of the week or something like that. But it is radical. Right. But it's also ordinary. And that doesn't mean that we have to roll out the red carpet for every single you know hospitable event it doesn't mean that we have to have pristine spaces where people can enjoy certain things all the time it can be very very ordinary and in fact we have a little bit of a strategy at our house with that which is that i never let us completely clean up our house when it, when people are coming over i actually intentionally stop about 3 quarters of the way <laughs> just because i'm like this is not the way that it looks all the time. And I don't want people, I neither want people to think, oh, the Ewings are slobs and they're living like in, <laughs> in shambles, which is not true either. But I also don't want them to feel, to get the sense that we have it all together or that there's never a time where my kid's underwear isn't in our living room stuck between the couch cushions. I usually try to get rid of the underwear. When we talk to, about practical stuff in a minute, I want to talk about just that messy hospitality kind of idea and embracing that. But yeah, I mean... In Butterfield's book, you realize like for them, like almost every night they have a dozen people over and meth addicts and stuff. But on the other hand, what she's serving them is rice and beans and they only have enough chairs so that all the kids have to go sit out on the back porch because there's not places for them to sit. So it's both radical and ordinary. Let me name one other objection, which is um, stage of life. So people feel like I'm not in a stage of life where I can be hospitable. The classic one for that, I think, is people with really young kids. And there's other realities too. One of the interesting things is that I am in a stage of life where people don't expect me to be hospitable, even though I'm trying to still practice that, right? Because I um, am a widower and a single dad. And obviously COVID has kept me from doing it as much. But what I would say to that is sort of what, akin to what we said earlier, it's okay to figure out how it looks and it might look different. As in, you might just order takeout pizza <laughs> when you have people over, but I really don't think that there's a stage of life that you can't share with people. The key is just that you have to embrace the fact that hospitality, and this gets back to what we were just saying, is really about just, in some sense, sharing yourself too. And so you need to recognize that, that they're going to see the mess. And if you have like three toddlers or something, it's going to be, you know, your house is going to look like you have three toddlers. <laughs> yeah, you got to lose some of that control, right? That kind of like... I've got to prepare something for someone else because it's a good, right thing to do. That kills the hospitable impulse in this to say like, I need to do this and therefore I'm going to prepare. And it's, it's, it's much more of an invitation of invitational life where you're sharing what actually is going on with those around you. Which is the point of hospitality, right? To share yourself. I mean, I'll be honest. If we go over for dinner to someone's house and everything is spotless and immaculate and the food is real fancy and they're all wearing button up shirts, I feel like off put by that because what I want to do is spend time with you and it's clear that you've worked very hard to not show me yourself in this moment. 
to show me something other than just yourself. And again, that doesn't mean you don't pick up some and you don't, you know, yeah, you do your best to to put the best part of yourself forward, I guess. That's not wrong. So I'll maybe move us, Eric, into the practical realm of how we actually do this. And we've mentioned a lot of stuff along the way, but you go first. Tell us what, what are some things that you do, practically speaking, to make sure this is a part of your life? Yeah. So let me just once more say maybe the thing that we've been saying already is a starting place, which is Elizabeth and I used to talk all the time about messy hospitality, which I think we got from an article somewhere years ago. But that is to say that like the the single greatest thing that keeps you from being hospitable is thinking that everything has to be neat and tidy in your house. I mean, sure, have your kids pick up their coats and Nerf guns from the middle of the living room floor so that people don't trip on them and, you know, make sure they have a place that they can sit down. But if you only entertain people when your house is immaculate, you just won't have people over. You've got to embrace the mess. And likewise, you've got to be willing to serve people sort of ordinary, messy food, right? Again, like try to cook something that tastes good, but it's okay that it's... Mac and cheese. Yeah. That, or the, you know, the sort of thing you would just have yeah. on a normal weeknight, right? Give them some chicken soup or something. It doesn't have to be steak that's been marinated for 12 hours and whatever. Yeah. I think another practical thing is just you can, depending on which stage of life you're in and how you think are approaching it with intentionality, it's not wrong to think about this is our night for hospitality. Maybe it's on the weekly basis. Maybe it's on a monthly basis. You know, you say like, this is the night that we have set aside for this purpose. And then you start to think, well, who's going to be there then? And that really then opens up a whole nother thing in your mind, right? Like, what is this for? And who would then be benefit? And it's not wrong, of course, sometimes to say, I really like that person and I'd like to spend some more time with them. Hospitality is something that is uh, deeply enriching to us spiritually and personally. And so friendship is born out of hospitality and there's nothing wrong with pursuing friendship. That's right. The one counterpoint to that though, is that you do also need to be mindful of including people you might not naturally include. And here I want to just, I mean, this is something I always knew, but again, just being in a new place in life, I think I've been thinking and recognizing a lot more of it. It is very easy for you to kind of program your hospitality with the people you're most comfortable with, meaning people that are in the same life station as you and people that are around the same age and kind of cultural educational group as you. And the problem with that is that people who don't fit in the mainstream of the church, like single people, like single parents, like people that are maybe part of cultural minorities or, you know, or just a little different in those ways, get left out. Or people don't cross generational lines. And so, you know, all the the 60-somethings are together with 60-somethings and all the 40-somethings are together with 40-somethings all the time. So, yeah, I don't want from that to, to remove the organicness and the fact that it is okay to just get to, you know, to be with friends. But there's also a reality where you can actually develop really good friendships with some of those people. It just takes some work initially to get across those kind of cultural barriers. Also, don't underestimate how meaningful and impactful sharing a meal or sharing your house is with someone who isn't a follower of Jesus. You know, I've seen this over and over again. We've had people in our house that are not yet Christians, and they are just blown away by the simplest hospitality. I think sometimes Christians get used to hanging out together and having this social fabric that goes so deep. And, you know, not not all Christians have that or engage in that for sure. But I think it's a good challenge for those of us who do have it and do rely on other people and do have small groups and that kind of thing in our lives to realize that many people don't have that. Recently, we had some folks over and there was somebody there who doesn't yet follow Jesus. And we were talking about some stuff and I won't mention what it is just so that person's not called out. They were here about this, but we ended up giving them something. So we gave them an object 
that was related to their life that we didn't need anymore. And, you know, it was like a, it was a nice object. It was like 70 or 80 bucks. And they just could not get over it. They could not get over. And it was not a big deal to us, obviously. But those are the kinds of things that can happen. The world is, is starved for communication, for uh, someone who cares for a shared life. And we really have an opportunity to be Christ to those people. And it's just such a, a beautiful benefit for us personally as well. Yeah, I mean, Christianity is designed to function and spread within strong relational ties, and especially in a time and place where loneliness and isolation have really become the norm. Just breaking those rules of isolation and pursuing relationship with people is really powerful and transformative. Let me add just one other practical thought, and this is where the category of hospitality gets a little blurry because it does involve more than just sharing food with people. Um, and especially in the ancient world, it often involved letting people stay with you. And there were all these different things that kind of went into that. But it but it involved sharing just sort of like the everydayness of life oftentimes with the people that would come and stay with you. And so I also think that, for example, having people go grocery shopping together right, with you, right? Just, you know, reach out to someone and be like, hey, I got to go to the grocery store tomorrow. Do you want to go to the grocery store too? Or just being like, I'm going to work on refinishing my deck and I'm going to intentionally just invite some guy over that I know to work with me on it and, you know, offer him some beers or something or a couple guys, not because you need the help, but because you recognize that by doing those everyday things together, you're, you're inviting people into your space and sharing yourself. I also think that's a big part of hospitality. And again, especially in our kind of isolated age, that has a lot of power too. And it also brings up the related point that people want to be useful to others. And so hospitality doesn't mean that you roll out the red carpet. It doesn't mean you do all the things. It means you invite someone in to help you do the things. And so they can cook and they can help do the dishes and all kinds of stuff if it's food that we're talking about. And not only is that an okay thing, it should be something that you encourage. Yeah. Let me just make one last note about hospitality very practically because of the way that it sometimes functions in the church, which is that I think it's very important to say that what we're talking about is something that if you're a dude listening is just as important for you to engage in this and to do the work to make it happens as it is if you're a woman who's listening. Because I think that one of the dangers that happens within a lot of marital dynamics is that part of why hospitality is hard is because the wife gets left with all of the burdens of making it happen. And so you guy who's listening, who's thinking we should do this more, need to understand that that means you need to do some like meal planning and picking up and and be really intentional about not making this just more of a burden that you place on your spouse. Not every marriage works that way, right? I just, I've noticed that trend too. I think it's really important to, to emphasize that. So now that we've man-shamed, I think we should transition, <laughs> Eric. <laughs> I think we'll leave it there for now, Eric, and turn to our segment called What's Good? We like to explore the beautiful, creative amazing world that God has given us and uh, the things that we are enjoying, whether that's something in a spiritual life or in the world outside around us. And so Eric, it's your turn this week. What's good? Yeah, I want to actually recommend a spiritual-ish thing that's related to a discussion we had a long time ago about kind of family discipleship. But we talked there about family worship times and how, you know, like in our family, we have one of our rhythms every night is to gather and sing and read scripture and pray together and stuff. And I've used various resources to help kind of make that happen. I think we mentioned like long story short and a couple of other things before, but I recently came across a really fantastic resource to make family worship happen. It is called Teach Us to Pray 
Scripture-Centered Family Worship Through the Year. And it is um, by Laura Copley and Elizabeth Hagen. And basically what it is, is it's laid out on the church calendar and every single day of the entire year. And down at the bottom, it actually has the dates worked out. I think it was published a year or two ago, but it's through like 2030 or something, right? So that, you know, if you're not sure where you are, but it's arranged around the church calendar. So you, you go through the different seasons of the church year and the different holidays and feast days and things like that. And Every single day of the year, it has you go through this process where there's like a, an invitation into worship from scripture and brief silence. And then um, they actually provide these little songs that are just a couple of lines that you can use. Or what we do is we just sing songs from our church because that's a way to help the kids learn those. And I play guitar during that time. And then they have a sort of scripture reading in a modern paraphrase version and then some prayer prompts and a brief prayer. I've found it to be really useful. I will say that it's, it's key demographic. Like our 10 year old is probably right at the top end of where it's kind of aimed. It's aimed at younger kids for sure. But if that's a rhythm that you want to start and you feel like you don't know where to start, it's for a long time. I've been looking for something good. That's literally just like you take this and you plug it in and every day for the whole year, you've got it set and it's really good for that. So teach us to pray. It's called. That's awesome. And if you want to dive deeper into how Eric and I lead our families in worship, you can listen to episode four of the podcast. That was the fourth one we did. So that's what he's referencing. Man, we were young back then. (laughs) All that time ago. Number four. With that said, Gray, thanks again for joining us, and we're so glad that you were here. Again, this is Simply Faithful, and if you enjoy this conversation or enjoy our other conversations, we really hope that you will invite some folks to join us at the table and participate in the conversation, too, by telling them about the podcast. Yes, we'd really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this. Check us out online at all the places where we are or at simplyfaithful.org. With that said, I'm Eric. I'm Greg. This has been Simply Faithful. Simply Faithful.